Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Grow Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over £50 million worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. So welcome everybody to Business Growth Secrets. You're here with Adam Stott. I've got a very special guest with me today that I'm super excited to bring on. That special guest is Nikki Take, and we're going to be discussing how over the past 25 years, she's built a consulting business that's helped over 8,000 people win more sales in their presentations. In addition to this, Nikki's done tons of things, actually the author of three books. In addition to being the author of three books, um, she's also a stand-up comedian, so I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun on the chat today. We've got a real diverse chat without a shadow of a doubt, so I'm super excited to bring you on, Nikki, and hear all about your very interesting life because you've done some really cool stuff, haven't you? You know, and uh, we just had a good chat before, and you're telling me lots of things, which is super interesting. So I think everyone's going to love this chat today. So welcome. How are we doing? Things good? Yeah, things are great. Thanks. Yeah, we're enjoying the fact that London is coming out of lockdown. Absolutely, absolutely. So we've obviously got tons to go over today. And I think what we'll start off with the, you know, the audience that are listening and the people that tend to listen to the podcast are, are, are business owners that are looking to grow. And I, from from my understanding, you know, you're a master at, at creating sales presentations and helping people to increase basically their closing ratios and making sure that they win deals. And you've done this at a very high level, helped over, I think you said seven to 8,000 people do it. So from your perspective, what are the secrets to to winning more sales? And what can uh, the audience learn today about sales presentations? How important are they? And how can we go out there and win more business when it comes to a sales presentation? Let's narrow my expertise slightly. So I don't. <laughs> so I'm I'm really good at helping business to business organisations drive their revenue, win more business, and we do that by helping in two ways. Uh, number one, their generic sales messaging and processes that sit behind that, and then number two, helping them with specific bits. And so the eight thousand is the specific bits. And that's where you know we're helping people who are, you know, if you're going to spend 50 million pounds on something, you run a process, you talk to at least three, maybe four or five. So average win rates have to be one in three or one in four or one in five. And you go through an RFP process that ends up with a finalist presentation. And that finalist presentation, we like to refer to as the most important 15 minutes in the sales cycle because you either win or you lose. And our clients win 75% of the time because we make sure that last 15 minutes counts. And obviously that means engaging earlier to make sure that the messaging is right and so that the messaging is right through whole, the whole bit, ideally enough to develop the solution and so that it solves the client's problems. So, so the mantra at Vincis is, you know, we take people from winning one in three of their deals to winning three in four of their deals. And that's either where we're deployed to help the whole system and and then we raise the average win rates or where we're doing the specific bids where they win three out of four. 
So really liking your tool there as well, you know, because your message is very clear. You know, that that is a very clear message. It's very simple, isn't it? You know, and I think for anyone, whether somebody's listening, they're a corporate business or a startup business, wherever they're at, you know, clear messaging for me is something that's really, really important. So I'm really glad to be talking to you about it because a confused mind at the end of the day doesn't buy, do they? Um, <laughs> no, and if I, not, not that particularly need to pitch but our pitch it comes from the messaging and the question is very very simple you know if we double or treble your new business win rates can you cope and, <laughs> and it's a good question because it future paces people's head into what happens when they are winning three times the level and you get a couple of answers from it i mean very occasionally you get people who laugh and go no <laughs> so okay <laughs> it was, you know this was a nice chat but it's not going anywhere is it and then you get the people who kind of really seriously think about what it would do and, and obviously does three things like it increases win rates which is easy but it also increases people's ability to maintain margin because you don't have to discount to win the deal if you've got a really good argument for buying off others you don't i don't need to discount to win the deal so margins go up and then the third the third benefit is people make decisions quicker if you're selling on value and they understand that there's a real kind of benefit to getting started and getting started quickly on whatever the project is it makes the buyer's decision easier because they're not comparing apples with apples like you know you've got apples and i've got cider and you know I want the cider. I don't want the apples. So it, people make the decisions earlier. So the, the the you know our value proposition is: if you've got the right sales messaging, you win more, you make more, and you make it quicker. Not really here to pitch for us, but yeah. but that's a separate <laughs> like I wanted to give some tips out to people. The mistakes that we see are pretty. You know, they're the same for the last 25 years. I've watched people making the same mistakes. And, and so I'll give you three three things that your business owners can think about um, that they are, that I would suspect most of them are probably stumbling into. The first thing is, what are you selling? Where are you in the sales cycle? What are you selling? And occasionally there are three value propositions, but there is always two. And so whatever your product or service is, it solves a problem for the client. And so there is a benefit of having that product or service. But I could probably buy that product or service from somebody else. Thanks to the internet, like your marketing plan is your competitor's R&D plan. And so, you know, unique selling points, which was very 1980s, doesn't exist anymore. If you are relying on the unique selling point, you're an idiot. And, you know, you're one of those chickens with the head cut off and running around the courtyard, but too stupid to know it's dead. Unique selling points don't work. And so you have to assume that whatever your product or service, there's somebody out there somewhere in the world that does exactly the same as you and is solving exactly the same problem. So you have to understand why the client needs the solution or the product or the service. That's the value proposition for the product or the service. That will get you to play the game, might get you into the RFP process, might even get you down selected to the finalist presentation. When you get to the finalist presentation, you've played that game. Now it's why would I buy it off you rather than them? And that's competitive value proposition is the bit that makes a difference. And generally speaking, people confuse the two in their messaging. And so they go in and they talk about why you need the service and then why you need the service from us all wrapped up into one. And like you said, confused people don't buy. If it's not clear to me what extra value I get from dealing with you, you might do a really good job of selling me on the product or service, but I might just buy it off the competitor because it looks the same. It's a bit cheaper. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first observation is be really, really clear in your messaging about what you're selling 
are you selling the product or service or are you selling you? And recognize that you're in different stages in the sale, you know, because if they haven't decided to buy the product or service, you need to sell that. And if yeah, they haven't decided that, yeah, you need to sell that. Great advice. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, and I always make it transparent to the client as well. So I would always sit there with a the client and say, well, you've got two decisions, haven't you? Do you want to do it? And then do you want to do it with me? So where are you? And <laughs> the client sit there and go, well, clearly we want to do it. We're just trying to decide, okay, so who else is in the running? <laughs> you know, yeah. Okay, here's why you would buy off me, not them. You know, I'm prettier. Which is a good reason. <laughs> anyway, that's, about, that's my first advice. What are you selling? The next piece of advice is what is the benefit? Like people talk about the features of what they do all the time. And very occasionally, some organizations talk about the benefit to them, which is even worse. Yeah, like, so, you know, well, this, is, this would be really good for us. I don't really care, do I? Like, I'm the, if I'm the prospect, like, <laughs> how does that help me? So you have to be crystal clear about the benefit of this to you is. And my advice is whatever statement you're going to make to a client, have a little kind of devil on your shoulder going, so what, so what, so what? Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, just why is that important? Yeah, what, what's in it for me? So what, so what, so what? And usually we ask three or four times in order to push people to coming up with a a proper value proposition, a proper reason for change. Uh, oh, and that's the other thing, you know, nine times out of 10, your biggest competitor is do nothing. It's not, it kind of, it's not, whoever you think your biggest competitor is, it's, and I'll do this myself. That's a great bit of advice in itself, you know, because a lot of people get very zoned in on their competitors, don't they? You know, but a lot of the time, it's just the fact that they, and I love the fact that you're breaking it up and you're saying that you're either buying the product or service and are you buying it off us? Because if you convince someone to buy the product or service, it doesn't mean you've got the business. Right. No, you're creating the market. Yeah. Like, and the problem is, like, you know, if it's a new market or a new product, new service, maybe that's important. Like, so, you know, there are some people who have got a product or service. I, um, in our, where our offices are in Liverpool, we've got a new startup that's kind of three months old in the next building. And their entire business is filling out the paperwork post Brexit for shipping companies. Like, that is not a service that was needed 12 months ago. And suddenly, you know, he's got 30 people in their kind of brand new business. So he doesn't need a value proposition like people need the service and nobody else is delivering it so he's just telling people what he does and people are buying off him at some point that changes the conversation that changes and somebody else is doing it and now he's in a well you know why would you do it with us rather than somebody else and so we, you know i've been trying to help him think through what's he going to do when he gets to the point where he has got competition and so uh, you know there are stuff that he could be doing now building processes getting lean getting efficient so that in 12 months time or 18 months time he's then got a value proposition so three points number one what are you selling number one so what and the third one is often a bit harder to get people to do it takes a bit of creativity sometimes but we call it say what like if you go to the cognitive science behind memory if you understand how memory works people need to hear things five or six times to remember it right? so you need to have something that's mnemonic that remembers it so let's say in the business i'm embedded in here at the moment one of our value propositions is service excellence so our argument is basically we do exactly what our competitors do except we'll get you the stuff you need the day before you need it, and they generally get it to you the day after that you need it. Our service is better. And then we prove it with, you know, here's the training we do, here's the process, here's the system, or here's all the stuff that we've built to ensure that you get the service, you get offers, can I be business? That's one of an eight. I love the fact you prove it. 
because this is well, you have to prove it. Yeah, you have to prove it because yeah. a lot of people say they've got the best service, but then they don't back it up with actually why their service is the best. Well, and, uh, uh, so yes, that is true. They make they make unsubstantiated claims, and so yeah. Well, a lot of what we do is help people figure out how do you prove it. I'll touch on that in a minute. But the other thing you have to be aware of is if you go in and make promises like that, and you're, I'm going to deliver service excellence. If one of your other value propositions is clearly bullshit, <laughs> and, and my my favourite, the one I get all the time is people say, "Well, we're the best in the industry." Okay, and that's clearly bollocks, right? It's not believable. Even if it were true, it's not believable. And so because you've said something that's not believable, I now doubt your integrity. And so now when you come in and say service excellence, we, you know, this is at the core of everything we do, and they're sitting there going, yeah, well, you would say that when you, your lips are moving and you're a salesperson, and you've already demonstrated to me that you've got a loose affiliation with the truth, so I don't believe you. So you, you have to do two things in your value proposition. One is it has to be something that you can prove. It also has to not contain any elements that are demonstrably unbelievable or demonstrably unprovable and so as soon as you start to and we could you know human nature you know people like to brag you know if you sit and say to anybody in the pub particularly straight white men we'll come on to them later what do you do for a living <laughs> like they don't sit there and go well you know basically i do admin like you know that everybody wants to make their job sound more impressive and and so you know the social habit is to oh well uh, you know i'm um, you know logistics engineer all right you drive a truck for a living <laughs> um, but it, you know it's human nature and then because if that filters into the sales pattern then you know people detect bullshit very easily and then the value often doesn't get believed because we've embellished this inappropriately somewhere else which gets us that so you, there are your three things what are you selling so right. What's the benefit of it? And then say what? What is the phrase that we're going to use that we're going to build mnemonics around so that when we leave the room, what are the five things they can remember? And those five things make them choose us instead of choosing somebody else. And that's how we win 75% of our deals. We understand how to get people to pay attention and how to manipulate people's memory so that they remember the five things, which means you have to be good at figuring out what the five things are. Just a tip about proof. There is a, to the low-hanging fruit, the easiest type of proof is, oh, we've got a case study. Let me show you where we've done it before. You know, and here's Bob from Tesco who's telling us how great we are. And the problem with that is you're curating the proof. So you've got 20 clients, but you're only showing me Tesco's because you and Bob are married to sisters or whatever. And, you know, the prospect is used to expecting you to curate those case studies like you don't come in and go here's a case study where it all went horribly wrong and here's what we learned from it people aren't brave enough to do that they might win the deal if they did but they won't do it so case studies are easy to put together you can always find a client that says you're great and you can usually prove it we put that at the end so we have a scheme a, a mnemonic to help people remember where proof looks we call it pilot and the t in pilot is testimonial there are more persuasive bits that sit before there but the harder to develop and they take a bit of coaching so the p stands for process so have you got a process that reliably delivers the value and the problem is most small businesses have spent so long developing processes to deliver the capability they've paid no attention to the process to deliver the value of the capability and because they can't articulate the value of the capability you know ours is better because they haven't thought about that they haven't thought about how to reliably back up the delivery of the value with a process so often the processes they've got just prove that they can do the paperwork or do 
you know, whatever it is they're selling. And, you know, in a construction world, I'll show you my process for building the hospital. You know, and I need that. Like, if you couldn't build a hospital, you wouldn't be in the running. The question is, can you build the, you know, is there a good reason for building the hospital rather than your competitors? What's your process for making sure when you commission it, I get whatever value I get out of it? People often haven't thought about that. So process. Um, I'm dyslexic, so I might misspell pilot. Bear with me. I is for intellectual capital or intellectual property. So we've got a piece of science that we own or a piece of technology we own that reliably delivers the value. You know, in our case, we have two bits of intellectual property, visual cognitive dissonance, which is how do I get people to pay attention and pass the mnemonic processes, which is how do I manipulate memory? Because we have we own that technology and develop that technology, we can make your presentations engaging and memorable, and therefore we can help you with and definitely that's IP, but it's also the L, which is logic. So because I'm really good at cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology, I can give you a presentation that people remember and act upon. That is a logical argument based on some IP. logical sense for the business, right? Okay, absolutely. And the and then the O is organizational design. So have you mostly people have designed their organizations around delivering capability. The really smart businesses that f- grow quickly have organized their businesses around delivering value to their clients, not delivering capability. And that organizational structure and organizational design is what makes it believable. So, for example, um, in the business that I'm implanted in at the moment, we have built a service excellence team. That service excellence team does nothing. And we have you know, four and a half thousand people delivering services across the UK. There's bound to be a few idiots. Like, you know, there's bound to be a few people that kind of mess up and kind of upset a client. So the service excellence team are the team that everybody, all the clients know about, and they can escalate the problem to the service excellence team. And the service excellence team will take that problem on and get to a revolution and sit with it until it's resolved. That gives the client peace of mind that we'll always deliver service excellence. That's an organizational proof. We've set up a team that do nothing else but deliver the value to them. That's an incredibly powerful way of selling service. None of our competitors have that team. None of our competitors have thought about it. I heard the audience call that. You know, one of the things that I have in our presentations is that we display the team that are actually going to deliver the service. And we actually um, we have a video that introduces them and shows the people this is who is going to be helping you. It's not just me. This is everybody that's involved, and it builds the value. All right. Yep. So I love that. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously the thesis testimony. I've got a question, right, on the process, because you mentioned it earlier, but it didn't say, because obviously people are logical and emotional, two reasons that they buy, right? They're going to justify it with logic, but they're going to a lot of the time buy it on emotion. And the future pacing is what creates that emotion, which you mentioned earlier, didn't you? You're saying about, you know, essentially future pacing someone, putting them in the future, imagining what it's like to own the product, have the product within the business, and what difference it's going to make to them. That's an emotional thing rather than a logical. So where do you bring, do you bring emotion into the presentation throughout? Or is that because you mentioned the logic, but not necessarily the emotion? Okay, so the short answer is yes, sometimes, but... Depending on it, yeah. Well, so it really depends on whether or not there's a rational argument. So if there is a solid rational argument for buying us rather than the competitor, like a demonstrably clear obvious (laughs) value, then, then the emotional buy isn't that important, right? Um, it's a solid reason. I, I'll give you an analogy. Like, I desperately want an Aston Martin. Um, let's say I go down to uh, Aston Martin and, and they've got one on the forecourt for £60,000. And I think, 
It's two years old. It's got 20,000 miles on the clock. It's the right color. That's the car I want, full service history, all the rest of it, 60 grand. I'm about to buy it. And I found my brother. I love my brother, but he's a dentist. So, And he's got an Aston Martin, two years old, same color, same year. Same and I go, oh, I'm about to buy one of those. He goes, oh, I'm selling mine. I'm oh, great. I go, well, you know, I don't want to give 60,000 pounds to some stranger. Like I'd rather buy yours. And he goes, yeah, but I want 70 for mine. And I love my brother, but 10 grand's 10 grand. <laughs> I'm not buying it off my brother, am I? I'm going to buy it off the dealer for 10 grand less. Yeah. So, you know, that emotional connection has a value. If there is a compelling reason to go somewhere else, like the half price, right? Well, I'm going to go somewhere else. The reason why emotional connection is so important in sales is that we're generally really bad at articulating value. And so, um, Michael Porter was the professor of strategy at Harvard Business School for years. And in the 80s, he wrote a book called Strategy. And in the book, he has generic strategies. How do you, how do you be dominant market leader in whatever market you're doing? And he says there's three strategies. You either deliver more value, which is you know, value selling. You deliver better services and, and have better relationships, which is the service model, or you're a least cost provider. And what Porter said is it wasn't a theory. It was, you know, investigating how did people, what strategy did people have for being market leader? And what he found is you, you have, you, you have to be okay at all three. Like you can't be three times the price of your competition, no matter how much value you're driving. And it doesn't matter how good your relationships are. If you're twice the price of your competition, you're going to lose. So you have to be in the ballpark. But he also worked out that if you want to be the dominant player, you have to be really, really good at one of them. And because being good at one of them has a cost of the other two, you differentiate yourself in that area. So if you're going to be least cost provider, you be easy jet and you have to keep your costs down. So you don't have plush offices like the one I'm in in London now. You have a you know, metal container on the side of the, the airfield where it doesn't cost you any money. And you, you know, if you Ryanair, you take the toilets out so you can reduce the cost and you play in that space. If you're a relationship service-based business, well, then you invest hugely in entertaining your relationships and CRM and building it. That's the commodity space. Like if you get pulled between price and relationship, you're in a commodity, you're not articulating value, you will get pulled between service and price. The way to avoid that is to sell on value. If you're selling on value, so I'm going to help you deliver more value to the client. If you deal with me, you're going to make an extra 2% margin. Like if there's real value in engaging with me, it doesn't matter about the relationship. It doesn't matter about the price. They have to be ballpark. Like I can't be twice the price and you can't really hate me. <laughs> but it's fairly compelling. And I'm living an example of it. When I transitioned from boy to girl, like, you know, some of my clients left because in fact, one very famously said, can't take you seriously anymore because you don't wear a business suit. You wear a dress. And I was like, okay. So actually it's not that you before you engaged with me, you were winning 19%. Now you're winning 69%. That's just because I presented as a boy, is it? He said, yes, fired me. 18 months later, they're back down to winning 20%. Oh, shit. It wasn't the dress then, was it? There was something more going on. Um, so you, you can't... How did that make you feel? What did you think on that? I mean, it's important, isn't it? Because it's, you know, it leads on to you know, people's perceptions. I mean, from this conversation, I mean, I think you've added massive value. You're clearly incredibly good at what you do. Right. You, I'll give you a joke, shall I? Um, yeah. I don't know how rude I can be. This is a podcast, isn't it? We're not. <laughs> oh, so, uh, so people ask me, uh, um, 
you know, often people come up and say, so you're transitioning, which was the most painful surgery, you know, the top surgery, the bottom surgery, like, what was the difficult bit? And I go, oh, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? When you had your, your boobs done, was that? And I said, no, 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 that was, that was fine. Said, what about the, the bottom surgery? No, 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 no all, all fine. She says, well, you know, what, what, what was the, what was the hobbit? I said, well, the hobbit was having all my arseholes removed. <laughs> and, and what has happened, in fact, is all my arseholes have left, like all the people that didn't, in all the dickheads yeah. of my life, now cross the street to avoid me. And so the guy that fired me, I had a, I was a million dollar contract down in Asia for a big IT firm. And do you know what? Once he'd gone, once that contract had gone, yeah. Yeah. do you know what? It was might have been a hundred thousand pounds a month's worth of revenue. And so for a you know relatively yeah. small business, that was a big client at the time. But they took three hundred thousand pounds worth of effort out of the business every month, and they were a pain in the ass. And they were a pain in the ass because he was he was an idiot. And now he left. You know, my you know, and that's I think you know. I'm not going to could happen at all, Nikki? Did you think you know this is going to happen? You know, like is that something that you foresaw happening that you were going to get? No, oh, obviously not. So I, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. The thing about entrepreneurs, and there's only one defining characteristic for an entrepreneur, and it's tenacity. It's the, like every single business owner, every, on, well, not business owner, because, you know, like my brother's a business owner, but he's a dentist. That's not very entrepreneurial. Is it? Like, I love uh, George Bush's Bushism. The problem with the French is they have no word for entrepreneur. No, mate, it's a French word coined by a French economist, <laughs> meaning, meaning moving assets from a low yield to a high yield. That's what entrepreneurs do. Like we look at the world and go, oh, if I put these people here, we can make more money doing that. That's entrepreneurial. But Bush is clearly an idiot. And um, so I think my mindset is, you know, I'm tenacious and I'm always optimistic. And those are the two characteristics of entrepreneurs. So when I when I talked about transitioning for work, like the list of people that told me it was a bad idea is was endless. Like my accountant, my lawyer, my FD at the time, like a client, like everybody came in and went, Oh no, like you'll kill your business, nobody will deal with you. Like it'll all be a disaster. Like, you know, nobody will take you seriously, all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, nah. <laughs> Like, oh, we go. We, you know, we'll weed out the idiots, and it'll all be fine. And and I was right, but not on the short term. <laughs> the yeah, short yeah. term, it was, it was quite. Yeah, oh, definitely, it was an impact. But you just kind of get on with it, don't you? It's like, yeah, you know, all right. So you're an asshole. We'll find somebody else. And at the end of the day, we have a compelling value proposition. We have a compelling business, and so like, uh, I was fine. They just washed through, and now we have clients who, well, I mean, I'm implanted now in you know what was our largest client now obviously not a client now because i'm in building it all internally for them but this company's it's called mercer and it's part of mmc which is the you know one of the fortune 100 client uh, companies in the world and they're very dni aware and i think they recognized that they needed a big cultural shift in the way they position and sell and part of the attraction of hiring me in to do this was that i'm trans like if you want to change a whole bunch of you know straight white men who were used to doing the same thing that they did 20 years ago in the same way every day and we've got to change the way they think about selling like you bringing somebody in as a catalyst for change is a good idea and so i think i think part of the well i don't think i know part of the attraction of bringing me in was not only am i very good at what i do but like you know people never forget like when i run a training session or when i run a consultancy session with them they never forget sitting in the room with the 
you know, the six foot tranny. <laughs> Being memorable is, you know, oh, that's a good thing, right? No, fair enough. And look, you're that's what it's all about. So yeah, sounds sounds like you certainly. And this is the thing. I think that in itself, everyone has different challenges that come up in business. It's maybe not a challenge that everyone will experience, but it shows you actually there's payoff for being comfortable in your own skin. I think in the wider context, because you know the more comfortable you are being you the more people that you're actually going to be attracted to that in different ways, isn't it? You know, and that's like, that's the story is there was someone that wasn't, you know, wasn't a fit for you, but then was someone even bigger and even better that was a fit for you. And yeah. I think if people are really comfortable with themselves, they'll do more business anyway. I think that's a good bit, a good business growth secret there in itself, right? I think the other thing is it's, um, so I'm a better consultant now as a female. I didn't anticipate this. So I, you know, spend, 25 years developing people's value propositions. And when, when I run a, a session with a client or a bid team or, you know, I sit and interview them for a couple of hours, ask them, you know, either about their business or about the opportunity, you know, who are they selling it, what's the competition, all that kind of stuff. And eventually we get to the point where I ask the question, so why would I buy it off you? And I role play the prospect and I sit there and go, oh, why would I buy it off you? And they tell me, and then my skill set is I, I don't have to think about you know, all that confusion that they have. Like I'm really, I've spent 27 years thinking about this stuff. I don't have to think about, well, that's a reason for doing it. It's not a reason for doing it with you. And how do you prove that on the rest of it? So I ask all the right questions, pull the information out. And the end of it, I go back with an with an elevator pitch, um, which is, you know, 90 seconds. Of, okay, so based on what you said, this is how I think you should pitch. This is your elevator pitch. And, you know, for the first kind of 10 years of doing that, three times a week, it was you know, occasionally I would get it wrong and occasionally we'd have to rework it and it would take a little bit of time to get something that, that everyone was comfortable with. But honestly, for the last 15 years, nobody's ever questioned it. Like I, I give them the value proposition and the first thing that they go is, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you go and talk to our clients because you're pitching our products better than we've ever heard them pitch? So I got used to never getting any pushback. And then first time I did a consultancy session as Nikki, not Nick, uh, the client, I delivered the value proposition, expecting the client to go, yeah, that's brilliant. Let's do with that. And uh, and he didn't. He came out, well, I'm not so sure. And I was like, and, and so I, I, I went into what is, what I now understand to be a very male reaction to that, which was, what do you mean you don't understand? Like, do you not understand? I'm an expert at this. Like, you're paying me £8,000 a day, you know, to come up with this shit because I'm really, really good at it and I've done it a thousand times and everybody wins in 35%. And I just, you know, and eventually he went, oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, and back down. And, you know, we got the value proposition. And it, like, it happened, like, the next three or four times. So I sat down with my solicitor, who's one of my mentors, and I went, why are they doing this? Like, why, you know, why now that I present as female, do they question what I say? And she looked at me and went, well, because that's what men do with women all the time. Like, they're not. They're treating you like a woman. They're just a CEO. And the difference is, as a woman in business, well, as a man in business, you're assumed to be competent until proven otherwise. And as a woman, you're assumed to be incompetent until proven otherwise, which is a really interesting It is. Dynamic. It's very, very interesting. And it's very rare that people have experienced both. Well, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's a unique unique thing, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, I said to Heather, what do I do about it? And she said, well, you you know, you definitely don't 
do what you did. Like, don't react like a boy and defend it. You know, there's much better ways of doing it. So, <laughs> so the next time it happened, I delivered the value proposition and the guy who was running it said, well, I'm not sure. And so I thought, oh, so no, well, um, what would be better? <laughs> and he was like, well, now you think. Now I think about it. You're probably right. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> right. And and what I found over time is the difference is instead of it being my idea that they've taken, he thinks it's his idea. Yeah. And so when he actually gets to pitch it in front of the client, he's pitching his idea. He's not pitching my idea. My win rates have gone up. So as a boy, we were winning. You know, if I coached 74, 75% of the deals, and as a girl now, we're winning over 80%. In fact, in and in this incarnation, in this in the last two years here, we have almost won every single deal I've coached. And I think it's because I'm now a better coach. Because instead of me having to prove to them that I'm smarter than them, I just smile, ask the right questions, and they all think it's their idea. And that makes me a better coach. If they think it's their idea, they're going to believe it more, they're going to deliver it more, and they're well, going to take it more enthusiasm. Yes, but the most important bit is when they're actually in the pitch and they get a question from left base and things change, they're able to adapt and morph the messaging better, you know, because they don't have to sit there and go, well, what would Nikki say? Right? They're able to go, oh, no. Let's, and, yes, I think as a coaching strategy, it's much better. So, I mean, I am, I mean, apart from the fact that I'm happier and lighter and fitter and clearly a prettier um, i'm a much better business person as a businesswoman rather than a businessman i'm a much better coach i'm a much better manager and when we got to the point like six seven years ago when we were rebranding business by that time i'd been doing a stand-up comedy and they you know everyone in the office had seen me as nick or nicky half the time and and i said to my staff well you know who should be the md going forward nick or nicky imagining that they were going to come back and go we don't care. It's just a different outfit. And I was quite shocked when all 30 people laughed and went, no, we want Nikki. Like, we never, we never want to see you in a business suit again, pretending to be a boy. Like, we don't like Nick. We like Nikki. And it became an easy decision um, to transition. And knowing that my that my team were behind it and knowing that we were probably going to lose a few ourselves as we did it for clients was fine. And we very quickly, you know, we very quickly found those organizations that are comfortable with me are actually the organizations that are easier to coach. Like if they're prepared to sit down in a room with me and talk about their business. Well, well you I know. find it as well. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it all works out, works out perfectly. I want to touch on the stand up comedy. I mean, that sounds really cool. And obviously it's not, it, you're obviously really busy because you're running a great business and you know, you're successful in what you do. What made you go into that? Where did that come from? You know, just a bit of background on it and what are you doing now with it? I think it's really interesting. So, well, that's a, that's a long-winded story, but I'll be brief. So, first time I put a dress on was almost 10 years ago, 16th of December 2012 was the first time I put a dress on. And what had happened is we'd had a theft in the business. Um, financial controller had stolen 100 grand and the business went into receivership. And long story short, I had a management team running the business and... I kind of left and the receiver asked me to take the business back and I ran it for a year and we lost money. And at the end of the year, I needed to change the culture of the business. So I turned up to the staff office too in a Miss Sexy Santa outfit. And when they'd all stopped laughing, I gave them a message. And the message is, stop thinking of me as daddy, 
wait till you get home, you're in trouble. Think of me as mummy. Have you got your schedule? Have you packed lunch? My job as the chief executive is to make you successful. It's not to clip your wings. It's to be the wing beneath your wings. Go out, do your best, get into trouble. And when it all goes horribly wrong, call mummy. I'll bring you home safe. Look after the customer. Like mummy, not daddy. And it massively changed the culture in the business and it massively kind of changed things around. My business partner at the time, after three months, because I kind of then figured out quite like wearing a dress and maybe I would do it again. Um, he came to me and said, I'm leaving. I'm taking our biggest client with me. And I said, you can't do that. You're director of this business. You've got fiduciary responsibility. We've got contracts with the client. And he said, well, you don't have a contract with the client because I never filed it. And you don't want anyone to know that you're, you're a tranny and, and I've got photographs of you and, and left and blackmailed me. So I kind of felt I had no yeah. choice but to, but to come out. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and specifically, I was a scout leader and a rugby coach, and and he was specifically like, well, the scouts will throw you out instantly, and you know, imagine the the parents of those kids that you coach when they find out that you're that you're a tranny, like all your wife will leave you, you know, your life will be shit, blah blah blah. So, I thought, well, I have to go and tell people, like, you can't, I can't be in a position where I'm going to get blackmailed, like I have to That's tell people, good. and I didn't understand that I was trans. I didn't understand, like I didn't even know what the word was. Like I just knew that, that I preferred the way people treated me when I dressed like this than when I dressed as a boy. So I didn't, and now I can articulate it, but then 10 years ago, I didn't have the words. And so I was writing another book about how to use comedy in the sales cycle. And I was researching it and I was talking to uh, Booker um, about it. And he'd said, well, you're not really going to understand jokes and gags until you actually get on stage you need to do some stand-up and i was like yeah but i'm a you know world-renowned presentation coach like i teach people to give sales presentations i can't really get on stage and be shit like it damaged my personal brand and he said well do it in character like you did that cross-dressing thing well you do it do it as nikki and then they're one eleven neck and i thought well that's a really good idea i'll do a bit of stand-up comedy in drag and then if I, you know, if it gets in the press or wonder anybody gets hold of it, I can go, well, I'm just, you know, I, I'm a, you know, one of the leading presentation coaches and I'm researching a different type of presentating and I'm doing, doing it in character. So I, I went down to Australia, uh, took my gear with me, blacked myself onto an open mic and went and did seven minutes, which actually, and I uh, got a camera crew to come and record it and at the end of the night, didn't realize it was the Australian National Open Mic Competition until he gave me $300 and said, well done, Sheila, you win. And so I brought the video back and I showed it to the booker and he went like, is that the first time you're doing stand-up? That's pretty good. You should make a career out of it. And so I, that's what I started doing. I, everywhere I traveled around the world, I would, you know, the booker would phone up and get me a gig. And so I've kind of performed all over the world. I did it for three or four years unpaid. I did three Edinburgh Fringe shows, which all cost me money. And then about four years ago, I stopped doing free gigs and I started only doing it when I was paid. Um, and so as a professional comic, I've, I've performed all over the States, you know, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Singapore, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, kind of occasionally in the UK, but not very often. And so it's become like a, a second career, which... And I, absolutely love it yeah. well, there's yeah. nothing like being on a stage and holding the audience in your hand 
comedy is interesting in the way you structure. You don't, you, you, when you see a really good comic, like you think, oh, they're just naturally funny people and it just rolls off and kind of, but it's not, it's all carefully scripted. And the, the way you, you know, like when I'm teaching people to give sales presentations, I teach them not to script. Scripted sales presentations don't work, but in comedy, it has to be scripted because you have to get the punch word has to be before the full stop so that there's a space for people to laugh in. So I'm, uh, let me give you an example. I'm not the most famous British trans woman or trans comic. You'll remember uh, Danny LaRue from my hometown, Lily Savage, but the most famous British tranny, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> and that's a rule of three. It's a formulate where writing a joke, but you need to get it right so that the, the space is at the end, which means you need to rehearse it. You know, I'll think of an, uh, another one that trips off the tongue easily. So I used to always start my... Um, business presentations with I used to be a salesperson, but I'm all right now. And now I start every conversation with I used to be a boy, but I'm all right now. And it's the same joke, but I'm applying it to a, a different audience. And I always kind of open my first joke on stage is always the same. And comedy is really interesting. If you get them on the first joke, yeah. the rest of the set works. And it doesn't matter whether it's five minutes or one hour. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but particularly when they've had a drink, particularly when they've had yeah. some, some alcohol. And my first joke, the punchline is, Good evening. And that's not funny until it's set up. And so it's set up because the host comes on mic and says, well, we're going to introduce, you know, Nikki Take, the gorgeous, the glamorous, three Edinburgh Fringe shows, two HBO specials, you know, very pleased to have the international comedian, the beautiful Miss Nikki Take. And then when I step on stage, they're expecting an attractive female. And the best thing about being trans is no cellulite which means I've got cracking legs. And so I'm wearing a micro mini, often so short people can tell I'm trans, it's another joke. And I get on stage and there's always a boy on the front looking at my legs like, Ooh. and the joke is to catch his eye and go, <laughs> and you're laughing already. And as soon as, yeah. as soon as his mates start laughing, everybody else is laughing. And then the punchline yeah. comes when I get my mic and go, good evening with my big, deep voice. And now the whole place is falling about laughing. And then everything else just works. Like every yeah. gag, everything works. So you do your best joke up front and your second best joke as you wander off stage. And the structure of it is the same. It's a lot like selling, like you're you know, selling the idea, you're selling a joke. If you just stand up and deliver the joke, doesn't work. But if you, you have to actually sell it and you have to you know, sell the punchline. And there's a lot of similarity to it. And then, of course, you know, takes a lot of confidence to get on stage and kind of in a dress and um <laughs> yeah i can imagine right it's been great i love it and i might i'm launching a show i'm launching um a show in london i've stopped traveling obviously for covid so i've been in one place for two years and i'm not going to go back on the road until early part of next year and so we're workshopping a new show October 26th and November 9th in Soho, which is called Laughter Gets Better Together, LGBT. And the idea is to try and get allies, straight white boys, in the room. <laughs> with their, I'm just saying, like it's yeah. probably your audience, like your right demographic, and um, bring them into the room with their queer friends and have a laugh and you know get three professional comics to come in and run a really good show and then there's a little workshop in the middle where we showcase the stupid stuff people say to queer people in the workplace and then teach the queer folk in the room how to 
respond with a joke rather than get angry or get upset or get, you know, whatever, escalate it, just laugh, you know, give a joke and teach the straight people in the room the sort of stuff we have to put up with. So we're teaching, you know, hopefully helping everybody go back to the workplace and make it a bit better by giving people some examples. And that's what I like about, you know, I don't do comedy for the money. Like, I don't think I've ever been paid more than my bar bill. Which says more about my expensive taste of wine than it does about yeah. the thing. But like, if you're going to make a career out of stand-up, you know, you have to perform, you know, yeah. four nights a week, and kind of it's a lot of effort. And, oh, I can't, you know, I don't need the money. I'm not doing it for that. And um, but I do like it when comedy makes people think. I do like, you know, the George Carlin kind of, I'm going to tell a joke, but at the end of this, you're going to relive this joke and you're going to think about it and it's going to change your behavior and your attitude in some way to, to the world because somebody, you know, pulled out something that's not obvious, but now it is obvious. You can't, you know, once you've learned it, you can't unlearn it. And that's the purpose of the show. We're workshopping it because... You know, we've got some interest from... Where can people go and see about the show? Is it out there now? uh, Actually, if you go to uh, laughtergetsbettertogether.com. Okay, laughtergetsbettertogether.com, yeah. Uh, That'll take you to the VIP sign-up page um, for the three events. We've got uh, October 26th and November 9th, they're all confirmed in London. November 25th, confirmed for New York. And then there'll be a December date. We're just waiting for um, confirmation from the venue. And then the December one is the pilot. So the December one is where we're going to have, like, really, we're getting really, really good LGB accent, Zoe Lines, Amos, you know, maybe uh, you know some really big names to come, and then we're going to record that as a pilot and show it to the BBC and you know see where it goes. But the workshops and the workshops should be fun. They're all free. There's no, you know, you don't have to buy tickets, but we want people to sign up because you know we need a full room and we need to make sure people turn up. Yeah, so it's it's you know comedy with a purpose. You know, have a good laugh, but also walk away going, you know. I learned something then. That was interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't seen that before. And all three of my Edinburgh Fringe shows were all that. And one of the first Edinburgh Fringe show was called Prey, which is the name of one of my books, which is about, you know, how I didn't realise as a boy I was potentially a predator. And when I put on a dress, I don't just become a lookalike girl, I become prey. Um, And it's mostly about the fact that I've, I've been physically attacked twice and sexually attacked twice since presenting as female and I had 45 years as a boy where none of that shit ever happened. And, you know, something, you know, sitting in front of NYPD special victims unit, giving a DNA sample and, you know, being sampled for somebody else's DNA is quite a wake up call to how much more vulnerable women are to men. So that was that show. It doesn't sound very funny, does it? But, um, but <laughs> That's it, pretty serious, that one, right? Yeah. But you, but you make it funny and you have people who are enjoying it and then there's the serious message behind it. Yeah. Then, then it works. The second one was called To Pee or Not To Pee, which was a, a take on um, North Carolina's passed the law saying you have to have the right, you have to have, you have to use the bathroom that matches the sex on your birth certificate, which just nuts. Uh-huh. That is a joke. You can laugh, don't worry, or smile. Um, and then the third one is because there's a priest. I'm not really sure what the denomination is, but there's a pastor in North Carolina, sorry, in uh, Arizona called Stephen Anderson, who thinks trans people should be put to death, let God sort us out. And, and, so, uh, and so my third show was called God Hates Me. I'm trans, which I think is my best piece of work so far, like including taking all of the Bible quotes that the 
quote at me, like Leviticus 20, 13 says, man shall not lie with another man lest he be stoned. Well, I'm from Liverpool. That sounds like a good for marijuana sales. <laughs> we should start a business. I get the world stoned. It'll all go gay. Be great. You know, I think it's a great piece of work because, you know, people come in the room curious as to, like I've heard all sorts of people coming in saying, you do realize God loves you. <laughs> you do realize that's just collective insanity. But, you know, okay, whatever. You know, if you can have those people leave the room thinking differently, like, you know, you're guilt by association, you might be a lovely person, but if you're a Christian, then you are standing side to side with this guy in America that wants to shoot me for being trans. How do you feel about that? And that, that message, dressed up with a load of humor, a load of jokes, kind of is, is an important message. So I really like, you know, the activism around this. Like diversity and inclusion is really important. We're going out and telling people it's really important and isn't going to change the world. We're going out and running a comedy show that people come to where they walk away realizing that diversity and inclusion is important. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's my gift for changing the world. Awesome. Well, look, Nicky, been amazing. You know, some great stuff here. It's been a very, you know, diverse in its own way episode here because we've had sales presentations, we've had comedy, you know, we've well, had tons of stuff together for you. If anybody's interested in watching any of the comedy, uh, or in fact, you know, my advice about sales, you can find my YouTube channel. If you Google corporate drag queen, yeah. I am every photo, every video, every everything. <laughs> for me, drag stands for drive rapid accountable growth because that's what I do. And so Google Corporate Drag Queen, find my YouTube channel. Don't watch any of the comedy in the office because it's not office appropriate. But if you see the Veets, I think there's like a hundred and they're all little kind of, you know, one minute pieces of advice to salespeople. Okay, brilliant. Good stuff, everyone. So go and check out Corporate Drag Queen on uh, YouTube and go and get some sales tips as well as some comedy and some humor. And a big thank you to you, Nikki. You've been absolutely amazing. And that wraps up today's episode of Business Growth Secrets. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure. Hey, everybody. Adam here. And I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is, perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive academy days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.